The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, put down your Manny Ramirez chemistry set and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 445 with guest Ken Scribner, recorded live Monday, April 27th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, the NRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telera, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who never got laid off in his life, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're at TechEd 2009 in Los Angeles. And uh, by the RD booth here, there's a little fishbowl set up. And uh, we've been doing Speaker Idol here, haven't we? Uh, we have. Two heats down, and they've been really tight heats. They have been. Good, good talent. Uh, I'm quite pleased with the uh, the contestants we've had so far. It, the, I don't, I'm don't. i happy I'm not a judge. It's hard to be a judge. I think the uh, they're going to videotape the finals on Thursday night, right? Yeah, I hope it's so, uh, because uh, these are all really talented speakers, yeah. and I'm sure our finalists are going to be awesome. Yeah, and you know, speaking of um, talks, uh, there's a talk I've been thinking about doing, and I want to know what the listeners think. Yeah. I'm thinking about doing a talk at, at TechEd or other developer conferences on audio basics, the right. basics of recording with microphones, of uh, using these little devices, of editing, yeah. of getting good sound, and the, all the little things that can go wrong, and some tips and tricks for, get it, for getting good sound without spending a lot of money. Sure. And, and plus, like all the different kinds of mics and why they're different. I'd love to see right. examples of that and, and compression and audio noise reduction. Because so many people think it's easy. Yeah. Because they hear audio and it's everywhere, it's ubiquitous, and it sounds good. Right. It's a lot of work to making it sound good. Right. It's it's uh, deceptively difficult. Well, I think it's a great idea, Carl, and uh, maybe the listeners think that too. Uh, send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. Hey, and uh, you remember the Brain Buster that we did? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Brain Buster, uh, and we wanted people to send in their suggestions or their, the, the answers, I think, what would happen. Yeah. Here's what it is. Um, I have a machine in yeah. the studio that we use for uh, editing, and it yeah. has a public address and a private address, so mm-hmm. it has two NIC cards in it. And we were trying to connect to it from a local machine that's on our local gigabit network. Right. And things were going really slow. And in fact, all of the machines that were connecting to it were going really slow, except for one. All right. So here's the problem. Here's how I found out. 
the DNS server was reporting back the name of the local machine with the internet address. Ah, okay. Because there was an internet, there was a table in the in the in the DNS, the same DNS server for right. the public address, and so that resolved first. And what we really wanted was the one ninety two one sixty eight address, of our, gigabit, address. Of our gigabit Ethernet. But it's kind of crazy. You were copying, you know, two machines that were a few feet apart, and it was right. going out over the internet. It's like seven hundred gigs is going to take an hour. Yeah, or seven seven hundred megs. But, yeah, it's going to take an hour. Seven hundred gigs. No, <laughs> <laughs> gig meg. You know, uh, they're, they're all getting screwed up in my head. So uh, one of our alert listeners, whose name I do not have on me because my laptop is. 15 feet away from me, and I should have remembered that. We'll, we'll announce that winner on Thursday, and that yeah, winner is going to get a mug. And uh, if you have any other puzzles that you want us to, uh, well, challenge the listeners with. Sure. Send us an email. Send us an email. .net rocks at franklins.net. All right. Let's get right to the interview we recorded earlier. Richard, it's time to introduce our guest. Ken Scribner is a software developer who happens to write books as an excuse to learn new technologies. There's nothing quite like a deadline to get those creative neurons firing. He's been working with computers since he built a breadboarded Z80 in college a few too many years ago. Happily, the Z80 survived the encounter. (laughs) (laughs) Although he fondly remembers writing 6502 assembly language on his Apple II, he's quite happy writing complex C-sharp applications today, both for the web and for the desktop. This is his seventh computer book, and he truly hopes you'll enjoy reading it and learning how to apply .NET to your RESTful application needs. His personal website is www.endurasoft.com. Welcome, Ken Scribner. Why, thanks, guys. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Seven books. At some point, we have to declare you not learning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hate to say it, but I use the books as an excuse to learn. Right. A long time ago, my wife was complaining I was on the computer too much. She thought I was playing games, and so the books are kind of an extension of that because she sees me writing books and then earning a little money for the royalties, and she says, oh, that's cool. Hey, go down on the computer and play some more. Yeah, do that again. Yeah, yeah do, do that more again. of that. Do more of that. Now, we have talked, obviously, about REST quite a bit on the on the show, but we never really we never really talked about its origins. You know, where did this come from? All of a sudden, I just remember people using the term uh, as a more general term for the HTTP uh, exchange experience. You know, of of uh, just using HTTP not for web data but for for data data. And uh, but where did where did where did it come from? You know, it's kind of interesting that that's that's really an excellent question because. Along about the time in 1999 when the SOAP protocol was being developed, a gentleman named Roy Fielding was working to earn his doctorate, and he created a a doctoral thesis, of course, to go with this, uh, that was analyzing network topologies and how you identify and classify them. And this, again, was around 1999-2000, so at the same time SOAP was coming out. And in the fifth chapter of that, he talks about REST. But that dissertation kind of lay dormant for a couple of years, right? So while SOAP was taking hold and becoming popular, we were adding all these specifications to kind of fill in the gaps where SOAP had holes. Fielding's dissertation just lay out there waiting to be rediscovered. And to me, the time we started really hearing about REST in a big way was when you started looking at uh, adding AJAX to web applications. People wanted to start using 
JavaScript to access web services. But, man, you know, when you start using the SOAP protocol, and especially if you're overlaying some of the specifications we've created since then, the so-called WSR specifications, you know, WS addressing, reliability, things like that, it is darn near impossible to do that in JavaScript. So all of a sudden, fielding dissertation kind of came back to the fore, and REST was elevated to our consciousness as an alternative to using some of the heavier weight protocols like SOAP. So really, you started seeing this again in 2004, 2005, 2006, in that range. Did he coin the acronym then? He did. He did, in fact. Um, as you may or may not know, he was one of the authors of the HTTP protocol itself. So he has been in on this for a long, long time. So he carries some weight then. Not only does he carry the weight, but he he really understands HTTP as a way to transfer representations of information throughout the Internet infrastructure. So the actual term has specific meaning to him. Right. To us, it may seem like a buzzword, but to him, it has specific technical meaning. So it, it is actually truly a, a, a technical term and an architectural description as to how these things should probably work. And the thing that always got me about REST is that it's sort of just, it defines it very generally, very broadly, HTTP. And I think that you hit on the, the nexus of the whole situation. Um, if you if you read Roy's dissertation, and if, if you really step back and consider where things have gone over the years, I think we became very enamored with XML. I think we became very enamored with the concept of serializing data in a binary form, putting it in an XML package, shipping it out over the network, having a server somewhere accepted. You know, we, we really got into that. I, I really took hold of that whole concept. But Roy stepped back and he said, no, wait a minute, you know, the Internet as a whole is designed to ride on the HTTP protocol, and the HTTP protocol is perfectly suited for transmitting information. Yes, we tend to look at it as transmitting web pages, but it could be used for more. And most of us also tend to forget about the other HTTP verbs or methods or you know, whatever you want to call them. I mean, we're used to the HTTP get. Mm. We're used to the, the variant of the HTTP, HTTP post that we use. But there's an HTTP delete and there's an HTTP put, you know, and these other verbs taken in context with the representation you're working with, all of a sudden really do form a nice API. Mm. And that's what Roy was trying to tell us. He's like, you know, you've made this very complex. And really, for good reason, that's my thought. But, you know, the complexity is there for a reason. Yeah, the complexity of SOAP is be- because of interoperability, isn't it, really? Interoperability, message reliability, uh, intermediaries where you're going to have a SOAP message might have some information for you, for me, for somebody else. And we want to route that to the various people. So why all of a sudden did people, you know, did that become sort of a, a not issue for people? You know, I thought the whole idea of SOAP was compatibility so that, you know, Java clients could could act and do transactions and be secure and all that stuff. And these are things that REST doesn't by itself um, support. True, but I think the reason that a lot of them, this has been elevated again to our consciousness is, again, the web applications that we're trying to write, especially some of the rich Internet applications using some of the frameworks like Silverlight or things like that. You know, we're really dependent upon the JavaScript 
interpreter in the browser. Okay. We're, we're very limited by what that can do. So it's a well-known client. It does. We don't expect to be passing messages back and forth to transactional systems, blah, blah, blah. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. At least for a, a very large subset of applications that you can envision. Okay. Right. So that's really what it came down to is that 90% of what we use XML over HTTP4 doesn't need all that goo. And that's exactly true. That is that is exactly what Dr. Fielding was trying to tell us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And plus, now we have, uh, you know, WCF for the systems that do talk to different services from different, um, you know, from different platforms and things. Yes, which is a which is a fantastic framework for doing RESTful communications with very easily uh, in your .NET code. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to just discard the fact that all this stuff we did in SOAP was goo. What if I want to maintain a transaction between two different services? No, that's exactly it. You you need it. You have to have it. Very much so. And and in the book, Scott and I really tried to to nail that down, that neither one is good nor bad. It really comes down to understanding the architectures into which each of these fit. And then right. applying the correct one to the proper architectural needs. If you have those needs, and and many enterprise applications do, right? If you're a banking industry or you know whatever kind of industry that needs that kind of technology to secure reliable messages and things like that, by all means use SOAP, and you you may be stuck with that because you have these additional needs that that the restful architecture by itself doesn't quite bring to the table. But if you, on the other hand, you have an application you're trying to bring to the masses, and you know they're going to be using the web browsers, they might be using different browsers. Actually, they will be. You're, you can guarantee that. You're probably going to want to choose the REST architecture over SOAP because you know that your limiting factor is going to be what JavaScript can do. So I, I got to think that one of the defining characteristics here then is as soon as the browsers are involved, we probably want REST. But if we're going server to server or smart client to server, SOAP's not a bad choice. Sure. At a, at a high level, that's probably going to be one of the first filters that you put your architecture through. Yeah. Especially if you plan to open that up as an API to, um, to other companies and other partners in the future. Oh, very much so, yeah. yeah. You, you have then to you're have going that. to introduce security needs and encryption that, that uh, REST probably is not the optimal choice to, to use. Right. When it sounds like adding those things into REST is basically counter to the REST philosophy entirely. Yeah. Well said. Very much so. Yeah. All right. So don't wait for it and don't try and add it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could try it. But as soon as you do, what typically happens is people who implement that, they tend to break the REST philosophy, tend to break the mold that REST is designed to fill. And good luck with that. By the way, and good luck with that, yeah. right? Because you're reinventing the wheel. You are reinventing the wheel. Yeah, you might as well use so. But and, and the real issue here is that if I do a, a security negotiation and I end up with a token that I now have to use on all my subsequent requests, I'm sort of breaching the whole concept of being stateless. I'm maintaining a state. That's also another excellent point. And rest. Dr. Fielding specifically mentions, and that token, by the way, I mean, if you're thinking about REST, that token is most likely a cookie, right? He's stuffed something in a cookie. And he is very much against the concept of a cookie, and REST 
really avoids the use of cookies at all costs. Um, I, I tend to personally try to soften that a little bit. Um, it depends on the intention of the cookie. If the cookie is some sort of application state or some sort of, say your preferences or shopping cart or stuff like that, right, that breaks rest. But um, for authentication purposes, you know, if it's just a little like ASP.NET security cookie, uh, we tend to look the other way. Um, right. And no. and let's face it, it is very tough to work in ASP.NET without the session cookie. Uh, well, the session cookie or the authentication cookie? Well, either way, but a lot of folks just use the authentication cookie I have no problem at all with because it, it is right. a pretty good tokening system. But lots of folks depend on session and not having a session cookie really is challenging. Well, it is, and it, but it gets back to the way the web was originally written, which is a pure right. stateless environment. Now, REST, in its, as Dr. Fielding defines it and as it, it should probably be used, is in fact truly stateless. And you don't have the concept of a session cookie or session maintenance or anything like that. Every request should be, according to theory and spec, you know, should be truly stateless. So I mean, we're essentially talking about stuffing the shopping cart into the web page to be put back each time you make a subsequent request. Yeah, it's it's almost more along the lines of who maintains that state. Right. Um, the argument is, if a server maintains that state, then the server has to basically maintain application state for the client. Right. With REST, what you want to do is push the application state to the client. Now, if the client maintains their shopping cart in whatever application structure you've established on the client, to REST, that's okay. But if, if on the other hand, you put that shopping cart in something like a cookie or something like this, and you yeah. expect the server to maintain that, that is that is the antithesis of REST. That is not what mm. REST wants to promote. It is not RESTful. Well, it sounds like there's there's a handful of principles of REST web service design that m- maybe we ought to talk about. Sure. This is certainly one of them. Uh, uh, is there a list somewhere in the dissertation, perhaps? Not so much in the list. Um I think a lot of people have kind of drawn some of that out over time. Mm. You know, they really have gone in and tried to say, okay, well, what is, what is Dr. Fielding trying to tell us? And it turns out that there's a, you know, a, a number of things that make something restful and not restful. By the way, the uh, dissertation, uh, the rest dissertation is at shrinkster.com slash 16CI. Now, what, what Dr. Fielding tells us is that RESTful systems must abide by certain principles to be considered RESTful. And there are four, actually, that most people talk about. The first is that the resources themselves are maintained by the server, but they're separate from the representations returned to the client. Okay, we got that. Mm-hmm. Resources on the server are then manipulated via the representations issued to the client, and that's where your HTTP methods and verbs come in. The messages used to convey those representations to the client are self-describing. So in other words, we don't want to put in there things that the client would not understand, like custom HTTP headers and things like that. And then finally, the application state is transferred using hypermedia techniques, or it has this hate OAS type of thing, where hypermedia is the engine of application state, right? That's what we're talking about. That's basically hyperlinks. The idea is that, and especially that last bullet is where you get into trouble with the cookies and things, 
the idea is, is that the client is the one who dictates the application state. So when I'm browsing the web or you're browsing the web, that's a very different experience depending on which hyperlinks we happen to click on. Hmm. We don't want to maintain that state on the server, and that's when you get into the session cookie. You just Same as a browser, really. Well, that's the the entire model is basically, yes, the yeah. browser model, pre-session state, right? It's, yeah, exactly. It's your application doing what the browser does. Exactly. Exactly. Without the assistance of, you know, the state management. Yeah, yeah. We we don't have any hidden fields with, with state information and things like that going back and forth. Right. Now, this has really um, become useful for as you said, rich internet applications, silverlight applications. Um, what about, um, you know, if you're just doing straight up AJAX with uh, maybe using jQuery, maybe you're not, maybe using ASP.NET AJAX. Do we still have principles of REST in there, or is that all just baked into the HTTP layer that we're already using? Kind of both. Yeah. You do have issues that you have to be concerned about, that are, you know, cross-domain type of issues and things like that, so you have to worry about those. Mm. But the JavaScript, whatever the representation is, is going to have to be interpreted by that JavaScript in some form. So if the service were to return XML, and may or may not be SOAP XML, then the JavaScript is still going to have to go in and figure out what the, the nuggets of data are that it really wants to, to pull out and provide to you know the web, the web browser. Or the representation could be in JSON or something like that that's more JavaScript-friendly. It could be RSS. It could be Atom. It could be almost anything. It could be pure text. Mm-hmm. It just kind of depends. Mm-hmm. But you're still, your, your AJAX services typically are designed with the web browser in mind, so you might optimize a little bit. You're going to offer a representation in JSON, for example. You can make it easy to access. You might provide for, for cross-domain scripting and things like that if necessary. Now, I'm still battling with where, if the, the state's got to live, if we're not going to store it on the server and use a, a, a token to identify it, then we, we really do have to haul it back and forth, right? You do. And each RESTful service call is supposed to provide all the information necessary to all the state information necessary to accomplish whatever task it is on the server. You're not supposed to store any of that session type state information on the server itself. So everything would go back and forth between the two. Right. But in the end, what you typically find is a lot of that's a lot more lightweight than you might at first think. I mean if you're yeah, thinking but, about a web page, right, and you've when got I think when I think of stuff I send back and forth every time, I think view state and hmm. lots of folks have had trouble with that. Yes. But in the end, do you need the view state if you have some sort of application that's already maintaining the information anyway? Right. I mean, right. That, that's the thing is view state's necessary because the browser doesn't keep information about your the state of your application from one click to another. But a, but a, but a Silverlight application certainly does. And sure. a you know, WPF application or a Windows well, Forms application certainly does. Well, let's go back and think about that web page a moment now. Imagine you're making these JavaScript calls, right? These RESTful calls. Is the web, web browser really dumping all that state? Well, not really, no. right? I mean, you've not really refreshed the page. Not with AJAX. So you can maintain that view state information. In fact, the browser does it for you, mm. right? 
when you're making those AJAX calls. It's only when you actually do the redirect, completely mm-hmm. dump the page and bring in a whole new page that you've lost all of that. That's right. So one could say AJAX makes view state obsolete. And that's the entire goal of AJAX, in fact, is to yeah. try to make that sort of thing obsolete. Uh, as well as bring a better experience to the client, simply because you're not doing that redirect. Indeed. Well, and and I see an awful lot of AJAX just not implemented this way. They, you know, the the number of folks I've talked to whose implementation of AJAX was using the Microsoft AJAX stack to wrap existing web controls in update panels. So they have asynchronous updates, but they still have tons of view state. And they oh, still have rendering happening on the server, and they're just getting HTML down to the browser to, to populate that update panel. Frankenstein. That's very, <laughs> that, that's very true, and that's a common usage pattern. But I think that we got into that initially, it, and it's a brilliant idea. I, I'm not trying to say it's not a good idea, but I think we got into it initially because people have mountains and mountains of legacy ASP.NET code. They right. wanted to play in the AJAX sandbox, and the easiest way to do that was to add the update panel. But the truth of the matter is, is that applications would be architected with AJAX in mind from the ground up. So, And it's a different mindset. You can get a sense of that here when we're talking about this state and how we're maintaining state, right? It's like, oh, wait a minute, what are you talking about? I don't have more view state. No more view state? Well, I can't live without it. Well, yes, you can. And But that's the thing. You have to change the way you think about the web application to architect an application in a true AJAX way. What you're doing when you're using the update panel is it's, it's a crutch, right? It, it allows you to limp along until, until and if and until you actually redesign your application to be truly oriented towards AJAX. But a true AJAX application would, would never um, use an update panel like that. Well, yeah, the point being that a true AJAX application ha- does its rendering on the client. Right. I'm just trying to. The other thing I'm trying to reconcile here is whether or not we can use this approach for conventional web applications, or is this only for sort of the AJAX Silverlight space? Oh no, I think it's it's useful for any any system that needs to communicate data, as long as it fits into that. And it's a very wide and very large category, right? But it has to fit into that category of not needing some of those specific things that SOAP and the WSR application. Uh, specifications bring to the table. You know, the reliable messaging, encryption, uh, you know, the, the partial message encryption and things like that. Right. But no, they're useful in a wide variety of applications. And, uh, you know, the book itself, we, we actually dedicated two chapters, and it might seem odd, but we dedicated two chapters to the client to try to specifically show that REST is useful in a great variety of, of places and applications. Trying to show people the different different places it could be used and how it might be applied. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who bring you this message. One of the drawbacks of using third-party tools is that you have to deal with numerous vendors. So say goodbye to consistent quality and service level. Fortunately, that's not always the case. Our friends at Telerik, for example, are a true one-stop shop for .NET. They recently rolled out their Q1 release, which is just packed with good stuff. Start with Silverlight, an incredible grid, chart, editor, and everything else. A whole suite. A 3D chart, yes, 3D in Silverlight is coming soon as well. The traditionally strong ASP.NET AJAX suite got even cooler. New controls, Visual Studio extensions for quick project kickstarts, new examples and skins, you name it. And how about web testing? Yep, 
Telerik is now offering a powerful solution for automated testing of modern AJAX applications. It's called Web UI Test Studio and is developed in partnership with Art of Test. Then comes reporting, WPF, WinForms, but I'm running out of time. So just go to www.telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com and be amazed. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So walk me through a conventional web page utilizing REST. So I'm not using the HTTP XML call to fetch uh, a data set and doing rendering that way. I, I just want to render a good old-fashioned ASP.NET page. Well, you're still going to have to have a piece of JavaScript. So you're still going to write some code. You're probably going to add it to the script manager. You're going to send it right. down. When the user pushes a button, you've probably wedged in there some sort of event that JavaScript's going to pick up. It's going to tickle a method that you provided. At that point, you're still going to have to use the, the XML HTTP object to mm-hmm. to get that information because that's the only true access to the to the network you've got outside of Silverlight. It's so funny that we've been doing that for years and years and years before anybody said the word Ajax. You know, the, we we we've been doing REST. You know, back when that was what we had. It. it it's true. I was working on an application in 1996 and 1997. Yeah. Um, we were using the XML HTTP object to to send textual information to a server for processing. Yeah. Yeah. It's been 10 years that I myself have personally used this, but it's only more recently that we've kind of formalized it and again kind of rediscovered Roy's, you know, Dr. Fielding's dissertation and yeah. Really took a good look at the way SOAP and the, those traditional, I guess you can call them that, traditional web services were going. And, and, and if, if I may, I, philosophically speaking, I think if you take a look at what SOAP does, it's, it, it's very much oriented towards these RPC or remote procedure call methods. And if you think about RPC, forget, forgetting SOAP for the moment, just look at Windows itself or Unix, those systems, they do RPC, right? And they do so by sending network packets to specific ports that are open for that purpose. Um, the, the port mapper, port 135 for DCOM, for example. That's mm. what it's for, right? Um, SOAP tends to work very much that way, only it applies it to the, to the Internet as a whole. We're going to take some information, we're going to wrap it up in XML, we're going to ship it off to a specific port on a web server, but that web server, which is generally port 80, but that web server then has to do what? It has to crack open that SOAP message. It has to decipher what we're trying to do. And then from there, invoke whatever code is, is going to be doing the job for us. Yeah. REST, on the other hand, really is more oriented towards this, the Internet ecosystem as it was originally thought of, or even as we use it today. Instead of sending things to a port and having the server crack open one message, kind of one message fits all, uh, it instead uses URLs, which then go to the server, and the server distributes that processing just as it would distribute the processing for a web page. So what happened was over time is that what we've done with SOAP is we've kind of, you know, maladjusted our look on the Internet, in a sense. And we've gone down that rabbit hole, and, and now we have to lay on all of these extra complexity to kind of get back to doing the sorts of things that, uh, you know, REST kind of does naturally, like accessing 
um, multiple representations like being able to cache responses and, and things like that. Is this a common problem? You're developing an application using REST, and all of a sudden there's a requirement for, oh, I don't know, uh, to encrypt data. And now you're sort of like, well, what should we do? Should we do you, do you open up a, you know, create an SSL channel for that? Do we do our own encryption? Uh, I mean, at what point do you bump up against the, the limitations of REST? And does that happen a lot? It seems like it might. Well, REST has really no way to do the encryption, so your only option is truly to use SSL. Correct? Yeah. Really yeah, which is what most people do even when you're using SOAP. Which is what most people do then, exactly. That's true. By yeah. and large. So what about some of the other features of SOAP? Maybe encryption was a bad thing. You know, what about a, what about a transaction? Well, hopefully, hopefully you're not going to be halfway through a development cycle and then all of a sudden realize you need transactions. I mean, something as architecturally fundamental as a transaction is going to push you into SOAP. Yeah. And, and your architect, your designer, hopefully has considered that beforehand because if that were to happen, if I were building an application and later on somebody came down and said, oh my gosh, we need transactions or we need to be able to route this to these three trading partners and oh, by the way, you know, part of it's encrypted for this guy, part of yeah. it's encrypted for that guy. As soon as they say that, you're in SOAP. And as soon as we need verification and validation. These are totally things you'd pick up on with on the whiteboard, right? If these are classic cocktail napkins. We go here, then we go here, then we go here. Oh, that's a that's a two-layer transaction. We've got to use SOAP. No, sure, okay. I understand. I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, maybe you intend to use REST and you start out, and then as soon as you hit one of these features, that takes REST off the table. It would very much do that, yeah. Yeah. My argument would be, and what I would, what I would rather see than the community at large arguing, right? Mm. Which is better, soap or rest? I would rather see the community say, okay, this architecture, soap, is mm. really applicable for these. It's, it's moderately applicable for these. And it's not so good for these other things over here. And the yeah. same with rest. And really understand what both architectural principles uh, and that's what they are. They're they're completely different architectures. Sure. Uh, they have implementations, obviously, but they're they're architectures, and they just they fit different models. And if you if you're in a development cycle and you're halfway through or however far you are, and you realize that oh, I need I need transactions, somebody made a mistake. Well, that's why you have architects. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you have architects. And those architects are the ones I would be speaking to. Sure. Understand what these these are and what each brings to the table and where they fit and use the appropriate tool at the appropriate time. So what does this mean to the .NET developer? How, how does .NET implement or how does a .NET developer implement REST in, in .NET? I, we've talked about WCF already, but are there other options? Well, you know, in fact, there are. Um, there's a lot of good reasons to use WCF, and WCF was designed specifically to handle communications. And in fact, your comments earlier about switching horses in the middle of a development cycle, if you happen to be using WCF, that facilitates that very easily. But .NET as a whole, and especially ASP.NET, has, has marvelous tools for building RESTful systems. Uh, you know, from HTTP handlers and HTTP modules and things like that. Uh, I claim that the Microsoft MVC framework is RESTful to the core. 
even though a lot of the the Technorati and Microsoft themselves don't really want us to say that because uh, mm-hmm. they want to see WCF. But I mean, if you look at how MVC works, ASP.NET-MVC, it's marvelously restful. So you have just all kinds of options for implementing restful capability in your application. And again, you might choose one over the other depending on where you are. Do I have legacy code I'm dealing with? Now, what's the understanding of the technologies of my development staff? How much time do I have? You know, things like that. The usual decision points. We could do things manually, too. I mean, you could just create an uh, HTTP request object and take some XML and throw it in there and go to town, couldn't you? You could. You could. And, and on the clients, especially the client, if you if you were to read the book, um, a lot of the clients that we develop do exactly that. They, they'll put together an HTTP request object, they'll fire off some XML or whatever to our services, and then get information back and then manipulate those. On the server, you're, you're typically more in the wait mode. And I'm waiting for some sort of RESTful request, and I have a piece of code in place that's going to intercept and deal with that. Mm-hmm. And the question then becomes, well, what kind of code are, are we talking about? It could be WCF. It could be an HTTP handler designed specifically for your application to do it. It could be a controller in the MVC framework or whatever you happen to have to work with. And, and I, it's, again, it's more of an understanding of what the tool set looks like and what our options truly are. I get that WCF will generate REST for me on the server side, but I have to write the code myself on the client side? Uh, it well, does it for you on the client too. WCF itself will generate a proxy that is is JavaScript and when the client hooks up to the web page, it will send that proxy down. And okay. from then on your JavaScript can use that proxy. But if you're developing services outside of that, you you will probably have to develop your own proxy. In fact very likely. But it sounds to me like WCF is the way to consume to generate and consume rest. I think it's the way moving forward in general. I think okay. it, it's certainly the prescriptive mode that that Microsoft prefers you to use. And because Microsoft is then free to change the internal mechanisms of WCF and it still doesn't necessarily break anybody as long as we put our new assemblies out. But Unfortunately, uh, it's like a lot of technologies. I think people out in the field, you know, you find out that it isn't so theoretically clear. We have these legacy applications we need to deal with, or frankly, WCF is, there's a lot to digest there. There's a lot to understand. There's a lot to get, you have to get right in the configuration to get it working correctly. Not necessarily in the specific case of REST, but in WCF in general. So it's not a simple small scale system there's a lot to it and some people feel intimidated or you know some people don't want to step up to using that level of the um, of capability or whatever so it's nice to know that you have options i think that's what it boils down to is if you're building a ground up system and you want to use wcf i think that's fantastic it's, it's the right way to go but there are a lot of other systems out there and and you have options and the normal notation for for a REST uh, package is JSON, right? Or is it XML? Um, that's actually hard to say. It, it could be almost anything. I mean, if you if you look at REST just as an architecture, 
all it really tells you is that there's going to be a representation in some format. Now, right. if you're if you're using a specific implementation um, tool, you know, like WCF, it's going to be XML or JSON. Could be Atom. Could be RSS. Those sorts of things. If you're building one from scratch, it could be anything else. Well, to me, it seems like REST being all about this sort of lightweight protocol, JSON seems to be lighter than anything else. Well, JSON's lighter than anything else, and it's perfectly suited for processing in a JavaScript client. There's no doubt about it. And you'll probably find a lot of people preferring to use JSON, even if you're building some sort of rich client. You have access to the, the same assemblies that can interpret JSON. You reference those assemblies, intercept your, your JSON response from the server, process it, and get the information that you need. That's, that's fine. In fact, we show exactly how to do that in the book. Uh, where does MVC fit into this whole relationship? <laughs> You've mentioned think, it a couple of times, and I'm just trying to yeah. get a picture. I think it depends who you ask. Um, when some of the technical editors were, were working through the book, um, I was, I, I in fact wrote that specific chapter on the MVC and I was making this very strong claim that, that the MVC framework is wonderfully restful. It's, it's restful to the core. And, you know, the Scott Hanselmans and people like that write back and they say, well, really, we don't want to necessarily say that because we want people to be using WCF. WCF is the way to go. Right. And, and I still really, I'm not comfortable with that. I mean, if I happen to be writing, an MVC application, and I'm going to, if you think about in terms of a model of using a controller, right, I may may indeed have controllers that were intended to be consumed by RESTful clients, so I see no reason why I wouldn't just simply write a controller and follow the same pattern that my MVC application is already following. Um, so, I, again, I think it depends on who you ask. Uh, some people are going to say, nah, nah, don't use you know, my, the ASP done that MVC framework in a wrestle way like that, but um, I beg to differ. And and uh, hopefully the the sample application we put in the book will will open other people's eyes and say yes, indeed. You know, that is an option we do have. Yeah, it, it actually personally to me seems like they fit together very nicely. They both focus on lightweight and very much that stateless approach to things. Yep. So they, they seem to go hand in hand. I just you're really the first person I've heard talking in the context of REST and MVC together. So I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, myself and if you're familiar with with Dino Esposito and his his books, um, Dino is very much in in the same camp that I am. That the the MVC framework is just it's it is purely restful. It was designed from the ground up to be restful and you know, a lot of other people really haven't either thought about it or, in some cases, at, like I said, at Microsoft and the engineering department, they, they actually actively try to avoid saying that, even though they, they know it to be true. They try to avoid it because they, they do want people to to move towards WCF. But again, WCF brings some things to the table. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, my co-author, Scott, uh, he was on the WCF team at Microsoft. So he is one of the people who actually helped develop the WCF framework, and he is the first person to tell you, if you were to ask him, you know, should I use WCF in every case? He would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There are, there are times when you can get by with something lighter weight, something simpler, and you should examine some of these other. 
in his terms, he says it's not a panacea. That's, that's almost the words he exactly that he's used with me. You know, don't become too enamored with w, WCF. He's told me in the past, don't be too enamored with that. Uh, you know, again, always consider the needs of the application, the requirements, the, the situation in which your code finds itself, and choose the proper tool. It may be WCF, but it may not be too. Hey, let's talk about your book for a little bit. I've shrinksterized it. Uh, if you go to shrinkster.com slash 16CJ, uh, that, that goes to the Amazon.com. Effective REST services via .NET for .NET Framework 3.5. So uh, Scott Seeley is your co-author. You were just talking about him. Yes, and, and I'd like to, if you don't mind, uh, thank him heartily for the work that he did. I think you'll find the book is is far better off for, for Scott's input, and I'm, I was tickled to, to work with him. Wow, that's great. Um, I'm, I, I don't see any uh, reviews, so uh, listeners, here's your chance. Go get the book, down, <laughs> you know, uh, buy it, read it, and, and leave, some, leave some stars for, uh, for Ken. Well, hopefully people will, will read it and enjoy it. I, I have to be honest, I've not received a copy yet myself. I think there's no reviews because it's just been released. Yes. I know it's out. I know Scott has a copy because his, he started the, the .NET users group in the Chicago area. And so as the, the founder of that .NET users group, he received a copy. But as an author, I don't think he has. So I'm still waiting for mine. I'm like dying to see this, see what it looks like. Oh, great. Yeah, I, I'm going to get a copy myself. Appreciate that. So, so uh, how long did it take? I started writing the table of contents last August. Um, and I put this table of contents together, and then it went through a review process. But while I was going through that review process, I started writing the first chapter. Uh, after I'd written the first chapter in its initial form, um, I had Scott take a look at it really before he was on board as an author. And he kind of pointed out a couple of things, and I separated that chapter into two chapters. And so the first two chapters of the book started out as one. Um, but the last August, and then the book was totally complete with the first pass of the chapters by late November. If if I may, can I just read the uh, uh, what it includes? There's a bullet list here. Please. Accessing RESTful services from desktop applications using Windows Forms and WPF. Supporting web client operations using Silverlight 2.0, JavaScript, and other technologies. Understanding how IIS 7 processes HTTP requests and using that knowledge to build better REST services. Constructing REST services based on traditional ASP.NET constructs. Utilizing the ASP.NET MVC framework to implement RESTful services more effectively. Taking advantage of WCF 3.5's powerful REST-specific capabilities. Creating RESTful data views effortlessly with ADO.NET data services. Leveraging Microsoft's Azure cloud computing platform to build innovative new services and choosing the right .NET technology for each REST application or service. We hadn't even talked about Azure. How do the the two of those things fit together? Fascinating technology. Fascinating, the the concept of cloud computing. But it turns out that the people at Microsoft who were writing a lot of the cloud computing core are also proponents of REST. Unfortunately, when you're talking about cloud computing, you're generally talking about a SAML token, uh, 
you know, and token providers. And in other words, some of the really hairy stuff that we deal with on the soap side, I mean, the really hairy stuff, like five people in the world understand it, and I'm not one, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. But they wanted to be able to have the ability to access RESTful services in the cloud. I guess I I should step back and say, well, what does that buy you? Right. What it it buys you is that the cloud computing is a lot like uh, Messenger or, you know, those types of applications, Instant Messenger on steroids, where you at your machine that you're sitting right in front of can be running a service that people around the world can access via the cloud or Azure. Now, if it just so happens that your service is a REST service and you want those consumers of your service outside in the Internet at large to be able to access that, um, how do you do that? Because normally you have to authenticate using, you know, card space, uh, which wraps up the SAML token or, you know, things like that, or generate a token directly, however you do it. So the, the designers of the, of Azure, the .NET services specifically, wanted to have access to services via RESTful means. And so they created a mechanism for doing that. Um, it, it breaks the RESTful rules a little bit, but in that one of the things you do is you have to retrieve uh, an authentication token and then that is sent back for each request in a custom HTTP header, which kind of breaks one of those bullets I'd mentioned earlier. Right. But you might want to do that because of the tremendous benefits that cloud computing brings to the table. In other words, allowing the world as a whole to access your service uh, for for no cost to you. You have to do nothing other than apply for an Azure account. So right. it's phenomenal, phenomenal uh, technology and just brings incredible capabilities to the table for all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. Although eventually people are going to get charged for their Azure accounts. Um, I understand that some capabilities will be charged, uh, will be, you know, papers, paper use, that type of thing. I also understand that in general bandwidth will be a, a paper consumption. So if you right. happen to be an Amazon, if, if Amazon were to use this, I'm just picking on them because I know that they have been using web services for years. If you were an Amazon and you wanted to go through the Microsoft Azure cloud, you're probably going to pay for the amount of bandwidth that's consumed. But it's not clear to me, and I, and I know some of the gentlemen there at Microsoft doing this pretty well, um, it's not clear to me they've said anything ever about it being completely pay-per-use. So I think there's always going to be and again, this is my own pontification. This is not a Microsoft stance. This is not uh, regurgitation of anything that I've ever said with anyone at Microsoft. But my sense is, is that there's still a strong <clears throat> hobbyist, um, a sense of of hobbyists out there at Microsoft, and they want people to to be able to use this to create new things. And they know that by charging everybody, anytime they use this, they're going to stifle that creativity. And in the end, what that will do is they may they may get a penny or two from you and I as individuals, grudgingly, right? right? I, I'm going to grudgingly give them that penny or two per per client using my service. But what will happen is they're going to drive me away if, if I, you know, if the muse came inside of my shoulder and hit me with the ugly stick and I, I came up with the world's greatest 
cloud application, you know, and Microsoft is the nickel and diming me. Am I going to put it on Azure? Probably not. I'm going to go right. to Google. You know, and so I think I think there's there's a recognition that they ought to allow, um, you know, for a certain amount of use uh, for free. So I think what you'll find is that you can get into the technology, you can learn it, use it, develop against it, understand it, innovate against it uh, at very low to to no cost, uh, even in the future. But again, that's that's just my crystal ball. It sounds to me like something like along the lines of Azure Express. Hmm. You know, just like you make a Visual Studio Express so that the hobbyists can play, there'll be a, a version of Azure that'll stay free just to let the hobbyists play. Yeah, that well, might this be is all conjecture. Who knows, really? It, it is all conjecture. You know, it, it might just be it might just be Azure, right? And depending on, they have a certain amount of information from you when you apply for your account. And right. if you were to grow to a certain point, right now what they do is they cut you off. So if I was an Amazon and I was using Azure and I was just really overloading their systems, they would simply shut me down. But they could still use that type of information to come back and say, okay, we need to negotiate some sort of agreement, whatever that might be. It might be as simple as give me a credit card or it might yeah. be more complex, you know, trading partner agreement. But whatever that mechanism is, you know, I think you'll see them start to, to bring those into play when Azure is more mature. Um, right now, at its maturity level, they, they really can't charge. But yeah, and, and Bomber has said that that uh, pricing and, and SLA will come out in the PDC timeframe. That makes sense. That that makes sense. Yeah. Ken, have you taken a look under the covers of ADO.net Data Services, codename Astoria, to see how they use REST? They are built on WCF. So oh, cool. Really, the 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 engine that drives REST in the ADO.NET data services is actually WCF, right? And so that's what they're using under the covers. They've layered some protocol on top of it to, mm-hmm. to make it nicer, right? To make it easier to to hook in your data sets and things like that. But that's what they're using under the covers. Okay, well that makes sense now. Sure. Yeah, I think I knew that from when we talked to Pablo. Castro about a story way back in the day. I seem to remember him saying about WCF. Mm-hmm. And it makes it really makes perfect sense for them to do that. It really does. Oh sure. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what Microsoft does. They leverage their own technology. They they dog food <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> to a large extent, you're right. But it's also a clear endorsement that that a guy like Pablo Castro was involved in the decision to use REST for uh, this protocol. Yeah. Didn't have to. It's true. Didn't have to, and in fact, um, they're they want you to use ADO.NET services um, very much so for your web applications. So, you know, you're going to see more technologies just as as ADO.NET services built on WCF. You're going to start to see technologies built on ADO.NET data services, right? So that'll be a foundational technology as more and more come out of Microsoft, more and more new capabilities and technologies. Ken, uh, what are you working on now? What's next for you? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, three books ago, I said I'm done writing books. <laughs> 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 I, you know, I mean, I, I enjoy it, but it takes a lot of time. It sure does. Uh, and, and to be honest, completely candid with everybody out there, uh, you know, you don't make anybody money writing books, no. right? That's no. That's not where you make any money. It's a 480-page resume. That's what it amounts to. Yeah, you know, it, all it does is it, it may or may not help you get a consulting job. Yeah. So, 
based on their belief that you actually know something, which is which also may or may not be true. Mm. It depends <laughs> on who you talk to and what you know. Um, yep. So I don't know. That's hard to say. Uh, right now, I'm kind of cool and my jets, taking it easy, uh, you know, kind of looking out there and seeing how people are using different technologies and what looks good to me. Uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully I'll pick up on a, a new technology and, and maybe do some more writing on it or uh, maybe even take take the leap and and try to innovate something and, you know, create an application, start a company. I think that'd be a lot of fun to do. I just haven't found out what that application that everybody needs is. Mm. I'm thinking it has to be mobile, but because uh, I've written some mobile apps before that people have really liked, but yeah. I just haven't quite figured it out. And I haven't found anybody to come give me tons of money to go write it. So, mm. so we'll see. But right now, pretty much just writing code and, and uh, reading books and hanging with family. Well, that sounds good. Ken Scribner, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And you gentlemen, too. I, I can't thank you enough for inviting me on. I, I've had a lot of fun. Great. And we'll see you next time. God damn it. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a